this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In episode 9 of the 2019 R&D season, Just Science interviews Dr. David Rivers, a professor at Loyola University, about the detection of insect stains and the development of quantifiable conformatory tests for fly contamination of bloodstain evidence. For post-mortem interval estimates, the species that lay eggs or deposit larvae are often considered the most useful, but now that might not be the case. Instead of focusing on the life cycle of the fly, Dr. David Rivers has pursued a different characteristic, their behavior. Through extensive recording and observation, Dr. Rivers and his team have discovered that there are over 13 different artifacts produced as a direct result of a fly's behavior. Listen in as he discusses the complexity of insect behavior and its potential use in forensic investigation. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm your host, John Morgan, with the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. The FTCOE is a program of the National Institute of Justice, and we're very, very grateful to them for their funding and sponsorship of not only the FTCOE, but the Just Science podcast. Our guest today at the American Academy of Forensic Sciences meeting in Baltimore in February of 2019 is Dr. David Rivers. Uh, he comes from Loyola University, which is actually my alma mater. I got my bachelor's degree in physics from Loyola, let's just say many years ago. It was <laughs> still called Loyola College. Loyola College in Maryland at the time. That's exactly right. And at that time, there was no uh, forensics program. And I was actually, as I told David before the podcast, I was one of only two graduates in physics out of the program uh, at that time. But Loyola has, has since uh, grown its uh, work in the natural sciences and in forensic science. We have. We, uh, we've experienced quite a bit of growth in uh, all of the sciences and um, in 2011 trying to explore new opportunities for our students we actually developed a forensic studies minor that in a short period of time has become the most popular minor on campus which I suppose is not totally surprising because the number of crime shows on television has correspondingly gone up at the same time. Um, building off of that success this uh, past year we actually have started a, a major in forensic studies as well. And I'm saying studies, not science, because we're purposely training students with a broader education so that they can view issues that are related to all things forensics from a broader perspective and bring in ideas from multiple disciplines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I've actually been speaking to a fair number of people here at the conference about this whole idea of forensic education. And there really is a need to rethink it because I, I think that having the broader perspective which is what I really enjoyed about Loyola. I didn't just yeah. go to get physics. I, right. I got you know a year of philosophy and theology and a semester of ethics and things of that nature. And that was really, really exciting for me. And having that broader view at the undergraduate level in particular, I think is very valuable. I think for undergrads, I think broad education is the most important thing. I, it's difficult to imagine when you're 18 years old that you have your whole life planned out so that you picked your major. And if you say, I'm gonna go into forensic science, it's a relatively restricted 
curricular path that you actually have to go on. If you change your mind, as so many students do, and that's a, a normal process, then you find yourself in a bit of a bind. Whereas if you start broader, uh, I, I think it's more appealing to students. And I think from the standpoint of all things in forensic education, I think we want students to have as many opportunities to write, to be able to explore different ethical issues, not just in a one and done scenario with a coursework, but where it's integrated into their entire curriculum. And most important from my perspective is I don't want our students to ever take their eyes off the most important feature, and that are the people that are involved with the, the various forms of crime or violence that may take place. So the science is very appealing to many, but we wanted to keep it grounded so they realize that they're doing this for a reason. And it's, it's in part why we started our program. Dr. David Rivers uh, is a professor at Loyola University. He has a PhD from Ohio State University in entomology with a concentration in, of all things, insect physiology, which we're going to get into the implications of today. Okay. <laughs> As he's going to talk about his NIJ-funded research uh, on the detection of insect stains from four species, I'm going to mess this up, necrophagus? Necrophagus. Flies on household materials using immunoassays, development of a quantifiable confirmatory test to detect fly artifacts contaminating bloodstain evidence, and is the co-author of uh, the critically acclaimed textbook, The Science of Forensic Entomology. So I'm uh, very, very happy to have David on the podcast today. And you also and gave a talk on this subject at our NIJ Research Symposium here on Tuesday. Yes, I did. So as usual, the podcast listeners should know that uh, the, the archive of Dr. Rivers' talk uh, will be available on the ForensicCOE.org website at the time of the release of this podcast. So if you are looking for more of the technical details, then uh, feel free to uh, get on the website. And so, David, you're into insect physiology. So, yes. I, and I assume that your emphasis into forensic science came after you started to get interested in what flies do one day versus the next. So. What is the relevance of insect physiology more broadly from a scientific perspective? Well, so just to address your first statement, it's a yes and no response to that. So I'm old enough that forensics of any type was not popular when I was actually going through school. And I'm probably one of the youngest generations or the earliest generations to be influenced by television because my idol during high school was Quincy. Sure, and, I remember Quincy um, well. So as an undergraduate, you know, I, I went to school to major in biology and the idea of pursuing forensics, no one knew what I was talking about, and they said if you wanted to be like Quincy, you go to medical school, which was not appealing to me in any way, shape, or form. So the insect physiology side came about from doing undergraduate research and getting inspired by a professor I worked with as an undergrad for most of my time of being there. And so my original interest with the physiology side was to develop biorational insecticides that would be able to reduce the number of pesticides that we were actually releasing into the environment. I always had the side interest in the forensic entomology, and it was still as my undergraduate years, I attended a conference during my senior year in Indiana in which a PhD candidate at Purdue University, Neil Haskell, was actually giving a presentation, and he was about to defend his thesis at the same time, and he started talking about forensic entomology, and it was kind of connecting all of the dots for me, getting me back to the forensics that I was interested in high school, and the entomological research I was doing as an undergrad. So I approached Neil about how do you do this? And there really wasn't an opportunity even at that time. So I decided to continue my graduate work in the realm of insect physiology at Ohio State. 
and uh, the lab that I was working in, we worked with necrophagous flies. We didn't call them that because no one had an emphasis on, on forensic science at the time. I was working with a parasitic wasp that actually parasitizes the flies and have worked with that wasp for 20 some years. And it was through my graduate work that I was actually asked to consult on a case that professor who was actually, I was a TA for. And that kind of, that was exciting. I, I, I wasn't doing the primary work, but just the fact that I got to do something with that kind of inspired me, let's see what else that we can actually do. So when I had the chance as a professor then years later to be able to introduce this to students, I thought we'll start at least having some discussions and laboratory exercises in my general entomology class so that they can experience as well. Some liked it, some think that everything associated with insects is gross, so the idea of insects on a dead body was the ultimate in gross. And just make sure nitrophagus, or, or if I'm saying that right, is dead eating, basically. So you're eating on the dead, so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the flies that we, we look at in those particular cases then are seeking the dead with the idea that it's gonna be an opportunity to be able to obtain nutrients than to either make eggs or to be able to deposit those eggs so that their young can actually develop. So there's obvious ecological connections when you're teaching undergraduate students biological concepts. So I've been doing this for quite some time. Then the applied side then is putting it specifically towards the casework. Let's uh, talk about the flies for a second. So is a necrophagus a fly a different species than other flies or are flies, I always thought of flies as being rather indiscriminate with respect to what they're willing to eat. <laughs> well, that depends. There, to give you perspective, there's 86,000 species of flies that have been identified in the world. And in the United States, I think there's an estimate of around 16,000 species. Of those, about 1,000 are characterized as having some sort of interest in a human corpse that's decomposing. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean that it's their primary meal, but it does mean that many of them will show an interest either because there's body fluids there or because of the tissues or for some other reason. But there are many different flies that will actually be associated with the bodies. Those that are most useful tend to be the ones that actually that they will lay eggs or deposit immature larvae on the body and so that the development of the young is completely tied to the corpse. Mm -hmm. So if we're going to make any predictions about how long the body has been there, then it's those that feed exclusively on the corpse that are most interesting to us. Even then, you're still talking quite a few species actually do that, representing many different families of flies. And they must be incredibly variable. They, they vary in size, they vary in color, they vary in the time that they show up when during decomposition is taking place. Some are better at getting indoors than other species are, or if you think about every conceivable location that a, a person thinks of to deposit a body in all these artificial situations, some can get to them, some cannot. So there's a lot of variability between the anatomy of the flies, but also with their behavior as well. So that raises the whole question of why we consider it useful, and I know this isn't your research, but let's talk about it, this particular aspect of it. Why do we consider it useful to look at the life cycle of the maggots and flies to be able to do post-mortem if there's that much variability among the flies? Well, there's variability in terms of the fly's life cycle, but they're very predictable when you're looking at a specific fly in terms of when they would be associated with the corpse and the time of year and the location that they actually would be. And importantly, they oftentimes are the only useful information we can actually derive. If the body is badly decomposed, then you might be getting past the point that forensic medicine may not be able to provide very many clues, but now it's the ecological evidence in the form of the flies that actually can tell more of the story. One of the wonderful advantages you have, and I say that like this is a great thing, but 
as a fly is feeding on the body, it's also consuming the tissues of that corpse. So you actually have a repository of human DNA that's actually within the fly itself that might be useful if the body's so badly decomposed you can't recover it from the, the remains. Sure. By that time, the flies have moved on? Not the maggots. So the adults come and go, but the, the offspring are going to spend their entire juvenile stage feeding on the corpse because they can't feed on anything else. So okay. they are exclusively tied to that corpse, and that's what makes them so valuable. Oh, okay. I see. I did not know that. Uh, the next question then becomes, well, what other things can we learn from them, or what else are they doing? So uh, your particular research, funded by NIJ, was kind of like the, the stains. And I assume by stains, we we're revisiting the old uh, children's book, Every, Everybody Poops, right? Uh, yes. So are, are those yes. the stains that we're talking about? We, we are, yes. So this is switching then from looking at the maggots, which seem to be the primary focus that everyone has, to looking at the adult fly. And in this particular case, the adult is actually not aiding in the investigation in the truest sense because when they arrive to the corpse, they're looking to feed. And they're sloppy eaters when they actually feed. So one of the things that they're going to find particularly appealing would be any type of fluid that has been released from the body in any way, whether that's decomposition fluids or if we're just simply talking blood as one of the most common. They'll feed on it. They will distort the shape of existing blood stains, whether they're wet or they're dry, which then makes it a challenge. Then if an individual is going to do reconstruction based upon the pattern of blood stains, the flies can distort that and give you false impressions of stains that look like that they are implying directionality, when in fact it was actually the fly started to walk while it was pooping, giving this idea that it looks very similar. They also can deposit their own artifacts. So in that case, there's a wide range of artifacts that we've discovered that they will actually deposit. During the NIJ grant, we started with the assumption that there was four distinct artifacts that flies produce, or stains would be the other way of referring to them. And through some of the videotaping work that we actually conducted, we actually found there are 13 different types of artifacts that they can actually create. It's far more complex than we originally thought that it was. Let's tear that apart then. What were the original four that you were considering? The original four, the, the two that stand out first are what we call regurgitate stains that are produced when the fly actually uh, expels the contents of the front port of its gut. So sure. naturally as humans we think of that as vomiting, but it's not because vomiting is a separate process in flies and the, and the vomit is chemically distinct from regurgitate. So mm -hmm. complex. More like a cud chewing kind of thing? Would it's be in something like that and, and they will modify the food source that they've consumed when they take it into that front port of the gut and then expel it. So it's, it's associated with a behavior called bubbling behavior with the fly where they'll actually they'll move the food back and forth from the mouth parts to the crop and then again several times and then oftentimes will drop that artifact and now it contains digestive enzymes so you actually are getting extra oral digestion that's taking place for the fly which is an adaptation that a lot of animals that liquid feed don't normally dump a lot of digestive enzymes into a, a large volume of liquid because it's inefficient so by releasing it from the body it evaporates and so you're condensing solid with the enzymes themselves it's a great strategy the fly just has to find it again to be able to take okay. full I just advantage. assumed that it was a thing where they were taking advantage of aerobic uh, bacteria as opposed to uh, that, concentrating the enzymatic. And there are other flies that that is, is the case. So if I get into a house fly or ones that we tend to refer to broadly as filth flies that can transmit bacteria in their stains that they actually create as well, there's evidence that those bacteria can actually thrive in 
to regurgitate and are actually using nutrient sources from the fly to actually to be able to propagate. And then in turn, the bacteria actually are releasing chemical signals that are actually signaling flies to actually come and go to those locations so they can actually find the products that they've actually created. So the regurgitant is the number one. So Followed is that two by different kinds? Or is regurgitant that... is just one that's coming from the front part of the digestive tract. Okay. Fecal elimination is also in the form of liquid, and okay. um, those are referred to as defecatory stains. Sure. And then we get into broadly two stains that you could classify as being transfer patterns. One would be translocation, whether they're dragging a body part through existing blood stains. Usually it's part of the abdomen, part of the leg. And then the next type that they actually would generate would wind up being tarsal tracks, equivalent to footprints, as they walk through, through any type of wet material, including their own stains that they've actually created. And so you have these tiny little dots that you will find everywhere. If it's blood, it just looks like somebody has taken a fine mist pattern and actually just sprayed it everywhere. Not every fly will do that. So it's actually specific to certain types of flies that we actually see. The, the larger the fly, the less likely it is that they actually leave a lot of the tarsal tracks. Hmm. So not sure why. It just Yeah, that's very counterintuitive. Yeah, it? we've looked at 31 species of flies, so we are definitely starting to see some clear patterns. And like I say, there are several other types that we actually discovered for our research the two stains that are of most interest are what we refer to as digestive artifacts. It's the regurgitate and the defecatory stains because the, the food source, wherever it came from, has spent time in their digestive tract. And importantly, when they deposit it on the surface, you can generally find most of those with alternate lighting you, if you're using a 450 nanometer wavelength. So you will get this nice fluorescent glow that you would not get. So if you tried to do the same thing with blood, well, blood doesn't fluoresce, so you wouldn't find the blood that way. But if it looks like blood and it fluoresces, then it, there's a strong suspicion that it may be derived from a fly. I see. That's interesting. So the, the other 13 artifacts are mostly digestive in nature, or is it? Is only it, a few. Only so a few. Many are created from, if the liquid of interest actually is pooled, the flies, I told you that they were messy. So flies will actually they will basically take a plunge into that pool of liquid. The association of plunging into it creates artifacts. The liquid sticking to their body now means that they don't want it be, to be stuck to their bodies. If they fling their wings, then you have cast off that's being created. They'll take their legs and they'll actually try to fling it off. They, they can't stand being dirty, so which right. you never would guess. You see them get the, getting themselves clean as right before you're about to swat them. Exactly. So, Yes, most people think they're disgusting, and they probably think themselves are disgusting, but they don't like to be dirty. And so uh, because the body is hydrophobic, but the hairs that are on it are hydrostatic, then it creates a situation where that you'll have lots of these liquids that will actually adhere, and they don't want it to be adhering to They wouldn't be them. able to fly. No, they can. So depending upon the size of the fly, they can fly, and they can fling it when they're in flight as well, which means oh. you're depositing these away from the crime scene at the same time. And this is something that can happen fairly early, because you're talking about an adult fly coming in. It might encounter a body very quickly. You can see these stainings occur pretty early in, this, in the PMI process. Maybe. What's interesting is there's a couple of reports from uh, investigators that have, have done extensive casework throughout Europe that indicates that their observation, the adult flies are getting in actually during the criminal investigation. So their experience has been that when the CSI unit shows up, they have a tendency to open the doors, and that's when they're seeing that most of these adult flies are actually coming in. And there's the introduction of artifacts 
that may have nothing to do with the crime scene as well. Sure. So, because believe it or not, the flies can actually retain the food in their gut. We've actually found for, in some cases, almost three weeks. So, oh, okay. Yes, which means the possibility that, that you have artifact introduction into a crime scene that may contain DNA from a fly that has nothing to do with that crime scene is a possibility. It's never really been investigated because we've never been able to identify the artifacts before. So that was kind of step one to the process. We need to be able to recognize that we have them before we can address the question of whether they're vectoring DNA. Yeah, so this is interesting in the sense that you started off really looking at just the stains left by flies, but you're really doing some fundamental work that we really need to do looking at kind of this fly physiology, life cycle, and, and things of that nature uh, that help to elucidate you know, how they might be used more directly as well. Yes, and it's to consider the view that in many cases we think of flies as being useful. They aren't in all cases. We also need to be aware of that as well. And there's been much less attention that's been dedicated to what the adult fly does at a crime scene than what the juveniles that are feeding actually do. Sure. So how did you actually conduct these experiments? I mean, obviously you can't have uh, human bodies lying about, and, and you had to choose which flies to use and that kind of thing. So how were you, how were you able to kind of tease out the behavior and, and the individual ways in which these stains uh, manifest? <clears throat> so it's, it's kind of a, a step process that we had to do. Um, most of the flies that we work with that we've actually field collected from using fetal pigs that we place in cages on campus. That creates a stir in and of itself. So since sure. we're an urban campus, I can't tell you the, quite the stir that has actually been created from that. And we've done it over, <laughs> a, yeah. That's, yeah, it yeah. definitely is an urban campus. Yeah, even, I, even in my day, that would have created to the stir. I was almost a crime scene myself with the rage that I've actually created, but okay. that's, that's another story. So for us, we felt it was important to collect flies over different seasons as well, so that if we were going to develop a method for being able to detect them, that we were actually encompassing when flies are actually going to be active in Baltimore region and then try to expand that to other regions themselves. So we do collections from February to December, depending upon the season, over the last three years, bring the flies back into the laboratory. Most of those we will actually establish colonies with. And then we have a set protocol where that we initially characterize their artifacts by giving them blood that they can feed upon, basically at will, ad libitum, over a set period of time, usually 24 hours. Uh, our standard protocol is to collect the artifacts on filter paper that we've actually standardized with the flies themselves, so we can at least get a sense of what the artifacts look like, the types of artifacts. We also do video recording with high-def camera as well. For those species that are doing something that's different from what we had seen with the others, you can group flies by, say, different genera, and see that most of them, similar tendencies are taking place. Big versus small flies and changing the seasons made a difference. The fluids that we had, you can purchase anything nowadays. So we, we, we have a source for that we can actually test blood, semen, urine, feces, and saliva. And what you find is that the fly behavior changes depending upon the type of fluid that you actually had in terms of the, the morphology of the artifacts, the number of artifacts that are there. Well, that makes perfect sense, I mean, uh, to the extent that they're, uh, it's basically a different food source to them. It is. And, and you find then that all of those patterns then change as well when you start using materials that are more typical of a crime scene that you would have. So we tested five basic types of materials from cotton t-shirts to uh, types of flooring, ceramic versus wood versus drywall versus, and we found some basic patterns where that we developed an immunoassay 
to try to be able to distinguish the digestive artifacts from the flies versus the actual human fluid that we actually had. Because when they're deposited and they're side by side, morphologically, you can't tell the difference between the two. There, sure. are, there are people who believe that you can. So case in point would be if you had blood stains that were actually on certain types of surfaces, you're expecting them to have a definitive color and shape that would be there. And the idea is that the flies can deposit different colors that may not be consistent with the color of the original blood food source. Sometimes that's true. More often than not, though, we found that the stains themselves reflect the same color as what they actually fed upon, in which case, when they're intermixed together, it's impossible really to tell the difference between the two. What people have done in the past is that because of the fly's behavior to be attracted to light, they're positively phototactic, then if you were in a crime scene that has windows or you have lights that are on, there's a tendency for them to be attracted and deposit some of their artifacts there. And even if you recognize that those were fly artifacts, you still may be missing the ones that are intermixed with sure. the stains in some other location. So we knew that there is a need to have an empirical method for being able to distinguish that. Right now, the only way that people make that distinction is based upon their own experiences. And so they're basically looking for visual cues, and then they'll look for contextual cues, this idea that these stains aren't consistent with the other ones there. So by process of elimination in their own mind, they said, this isn't consistent with my experience. But you can't test that. There's no way to validate that particular approach. And most who have, I've talked to that actually do this for a living have indicated I've never made a mistake being able to identify insect artifacts. I've been told that, I have to say, over a dozen times. And I said, I'm not trying to be rude. I'm just trying to get some sense of how have you reached how this assertion. You, how would you even know? Yes, there's <laughs> no way for you that you would know because you have no control for you to make that distinction. But that's an assertion that has been shared with me on many different occasions. Because they said, what you're doing with your research is something, it's an interesting project, but is there any, any need for that? And sure. the answer is, well, yes, if we're actually trying to get it so that it's completely focused on the science so that you don't need a forensic entomologist to do the assay that we're doing. You, and you can actually have any, any lab. Actually, you can have anyone with a high school education actually run the assay. It's very straightforward. So you can actually validate the technique fairly easily. You mentioned that the regurgitant, at least, has, is going to be fluorescent with respect to ALS. Is that true? Uh, across the different types, am I getting that right? Only the only when the fluid has spent time in the digestive tract of the fly. So that really, it zeroes you in on regurgitate and defecatory stains, which tend to be the dominant ones that you find. So if a fly spends any amount of time at a crime scene, then just giving you a rough estimate, 70 to 90% of the artifacts that would be originating from the fly are going to be a digestive artifact of some type. Right. So right. we cannot detect the ones that are from liquid sticking to their body or they have modified an existing stain. We don't have a method to make that distinction because our technique is based upon generating antibodies that recognize a specific enzyme in fly digestive fluids. So, I mean, there's, uh, there certainly is a recommendation to take some care with respect to looking to see what might fluoresce. Yes. And I suppose that most of the other artifacts also have a different geometry, like you're talking about as you're saying, the, the main classes are things like basically foot tracks <laughs> and, uh, and other kinds of, of things that would be very distinctive if the person who's doing the investigation is aware of what those morphologies are. Well, like. it depends on the species. Again, there's so much variation that takes place that that has been the assumption is that you could tell based upon distinctive traits. Digestive artifacts from some species have tails. 
So that is distinctive. Uh, in some cases, they're very large. But there are other scenarios in which, which human blood stains can actually be large or small with tails under different conditions or that have a fine mist pattern that would be consistent with the tarsal tracts, depending upon how it's deposited, that makes it so that it's not nearly as obvious based on morphology as you might guess that it would be. Sure. If it's a different color, yes, but if it's not a different color, no. And further, of course, as you mentioned, you know, an adult fly is going to, for up to three weeks, is going to have some of that genetic material inside of it from what it has eaten. But the other thing is, do the maggots also uh, have similar processes in terms of what they're, uh, in terms of what they're leaving behind? Are we, is that an issue as well? So they do create artifacts when they leave a body. So maggots themselves have to spend their time on the body until they're done feeding. There are some rare situations where that they can come off and then go back on, but generally they don't, in large part because they are such voracious feeders they can't afford to actually not be on the body. When a fly maggot is done feeding, with the exception of only a handful of species, they will leave the corpse and they will start to migrate away to actually go through a transformation stage in their development. As they're migrating away, if you're talking that their body is covered with decomposition fluids, then they are leaving maggot trails the entire way. They're also expelling contents from their gut because they cannot go through the transformation, or at least the assumption is they cannot go through the transformation with food still in the digestive tract. So they will actually purge from the mouth and they'll purge from the anus as well. To my knowledge, most people can recognize the long trails. So anybody that walks in says, oh, we've had maggots that have been crawling across the floor. Sure. Not as obvious on carpet. Those smaller types of artifacts that would be originating from the digestive tract, no one has actually focused on them at all. Uh, sure. Now, can these types of artifacts also be used in other ways? Like, can these kind of elucidate variables associated with uh, the life cycle of the fly and the maggot so that you would be able to maybe reduce some of the uncertainties associated in PMI? We're not entirely sure because, in all honesty, if you do a literature search on fly artifacts, uh, until 2018, there were, I believe, 15 total articles that have been published. That's not a lot. That's not a lot. Um, and that, that's a worldwide search. So what we know about the artifacts are not a lot. So, for example, one of the ideas is that the artifacts could be temporary storage sites of human DNA that might be useful if someone didn't discover it initially, the body's already been cleaned up and the room has been cleaned, and then you're, you still have some uncertainty what's going on, it's theoretically possible that you could find artifacts in these locations where the flies were actually attracted to and may be able to do DNA extraction. Some evidence has shown that in the limited studies that have been done that DNA can be extracted for almost two years later after an artifact has been deposited, so it's a quite stable environment. It may be theoretically possible then that there may be some evidence of toxicological use that could be there as well. It hasn't been tested, so we really don't know, but it's, it's a possibility. So in almost every way that we've imagined that a maggot might be able to be a surrogate for human tissue, there's the potential that the artifacts can conceivably be that way as well, only in much less concentrated form. Well, it's actually interesting because, again, it's very particular kinds of cases, but if you had a case where a body had gone through even you know, some kind of significant decomposition in one location and was moved, yes, they, yeah, you definitely would be able to, at least theoretically, maybe find some of those artifacts in the original location and tie the body to that location as well as maybe other, other information as well. It's theoretically possible. And, you know, another area that might be examined, and, and it's, 
one that's ongoing for most people is always trying to age body fluid stains. Is it possible that the flies have some type of marker that's now associated with the artifact that gives you a better estimate of how long that that blood may have been there as opposed to relying on the blood independently for that marker? I know there's a great deal of research that's looked at it. No one has ever considered that idea. So there, there may be an indicator of some sort that's associated with the digestive fluids that we just never would have considered that might be useful in that respect. Sure. In, in some ways, uh, I think maybe the, the lesson here, although there is a lot more science to be done, the uh, flies in, uh, in particular are, are doing a little crime scene collection for us. I would say that's accurate, yes, which I consider a positive, but we started off the conversation by saying that the flies are actually contaminating the crime scenes. Yeah, so. yeah. As long as they're contaminating it in a way that we can understand, David, we'll be in great shape. I would say yes, <laughs> so if we can get to that point. And I, I think we will. I don't think that this will be as hot a topic as all the others that are associated with forensic entomology, but um, I might be surprised because there's been so few studies. So, and so you're about to finish your NIJ grant, uh, looking at these particular artifacts and basically doing, uh, I guess what I would call a cataloging of the different kinds of artifacts and how they manifest across at least 31 species. Yes. So are you looking to extend the research uh, at another point? We, we continue to actually collect different species of flies to find out how useful that the immunoassay is that we actually created. We predominantly concentrated on flies that have been collected from Baltimore region up to southern Pennsylvania. So we, we do want to actually test some other species as well. But the flies we've looked at represent 10 different families. So we feel fairly confident that even as we look at some species that haven't been tested, that there should be similar results. The next step that we want to do is really to explore this idea of the flies as repositories for human DNA as well particularly looking at these different tissues and to find out then are the flies actually functioning as vectors for transferring the DNA and just exactly how long does DNA remain viable in the adult fly gut. So to get some sense of can they actually feed on say human refuge for example, not going hopping from one crime scene to another but just simply feeding upon materials that are part of our everyday lives could they introduce DNA into a crime scene doing that because it's preserved oh, for such sure, a long yeah. period of time. Yeah, so that's absolutely. probably the next step for us. Okay, well that's that's fascinating, David. I appreciate the uh, perspectives. Uh, thank you very much for uh, being on the the podcast today. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. And uh, I want to thank the listeners for uh, downloading us off of the podcast platform of your choice. Please give us lots of thumbs up and stars, and tell your friends and colleagues about Just Science and all of the products of the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. We appreciate your time here today and listening in, and we appreciate Dr. David Rivers from Loyola University for his uh, insights today. Next week, Just Science interviews Dr. Christopher Earhart about determining tissue type, age of evidence, and contributors of biological mixtures by using cellular autofluorescence signatures. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. Thank you.